Welcome to Mexico Matters, the CSIS podcast about how events occurring in Mexico can impact and more importantly, matter in the United States. I am Mariana Campero, non-resident senior associate of the Americas program at CSIS and the former CEO of the Mexican Council on Foreign Relations, COMEXI. The COVID-19 pandemic hit Mexico while already standing in a very feeble place, as in the past two years, the Mexican government has taken a series of actions that run counter to its economic, security, and environmental interests. To help us understand how this course of action will affect both countries, I welcome Kim Breyer, former Assistant Secretary at the State Department, and Luis de la Calle, a renowned Mexican economist. Kim, Luis, it is a true privilege to have you on the show today. Thank you. As you know, Two years ago, Andrés Manuel López Obrador took office by promising a fourth political transformation of the country. And thus far, he has declared war on neoliberalism, but he has also taken a series of unmarket-friendly actions aimed primarily at bringing the country back to an era before NAFTA. Many of these actions which started with the cancellation of the new international airport and more recently, with an electricity bill that would prioritize the national utility company, have certainly hindered private sector investments, but they also contravene with Mexico's global trade deals, and they also breach our climate change commitments. Kim, I know very few people in Washington that know Mexico as well as you do. You have worked for so many years in trying to develop a trustworthy partnership between the two countries. What are your main concerns today about Mexico? And more importantly, why should it matter to people in government, in business, and other policymakers in the United States? Thank you, Mariana, and, and to CSIS for hosting this today and for putting together this, this new series. Uh, I want to start by saying your title is exactly right. And the fact that Mexico matters to the United States has been the focus of my career off and on for about 20 years now. This shouldn't be a hard sell in Washington, but unfortunately, sometimes it's a point that needs to be restated. Policymakers in D.C. have a lot of competing priorities and sometimes need the reminder that these relationships nearby require high level attention as well as the day to day attention they get by just a virtue of proximity. So first, why does Mexico matter? It's simply the case that there is probably no foreign policy relationship in the world for the United States that affects the lives of everyday Americans every day as much as the relationship with Mexico. And we hear the data all the time about economics. One of our top trading partners, we're now at over 600 billion in bilateral trade a year, at least we were pre-COVID. But let me give you a few more tangible examples. I'm a kid from Massachusetts originally, a small state in New England, not close to the U.S.-Mexico border. My home state exported nearly $2 billion to Mexico in 2019. Michigan, a state that borders Canada, exported over $12 billion to Mexico in 2018. What that means for these states and for many other states is jobs. Then you get to places like Texas, where Mexico is its top trade partner. Texas exports over $100 billion to Mexico every year. So from an economic standpoint, 
the bilateral relationship affects Americans in ways that many people may not immediately realize, even in small states like my home state in New England. There's also the fact that you can't argue with geography. We share a land border of nearly 2,000 miles. Mexicans and Americans cross our borders every day in both directions, legally, for many reasons, school, commuting, jobs, health care, to visit friends and family. Our border regions are deeply intertwined. Then you get to security issues, where the two countries have a major shared challenge, with the U.S. being a large market, not only for all the legal trade that I mentioned, but also for the illegal trade, mostly in illegal drugs, and Mexico being at the same time a transit point and a supplier. Mexico tends to experience the violence, and the U.S. experiences the overdoses, and the toll on both countries is staggering. Then you also work with Mexico on issues around the region, for example, on third country immigration, or diplomacy in regional institutions, or even global institutions. Mexico recently took over a non-permanent seat on the U.N. Security Council, so I'm sure we're looking at a situation of increased exchange of ideas on global issues with Mexico. So the bottom line is Mexico matters to the United States all day, every day, locally, regionally, bilaterally, and globally. So you asked you know, what my concerns are looking at where we are now in this relationship. The first one I always have to mention on the U.S. side is bandwidth. I think the Biden team has come in with an early focus and intent to reset the relationship with Mexico, and this is a really good thing. I think the challenge will be sustaining U.S. attention in a complicated world. This is always the case. It's not a political commentary on the Biden administration. But it is fair to say that under Trump, there was a sustained focus because of the renegotiation of the USMCA, the NAFTA, which became USMCA, and the Trump administration's desire to find ways to do more on third country immigration. You can agree or disagree with Trump's policies, but I don't think anyone can say that there was a lack of focus. I don't think that continued focus is a given. We'll see how it, how it shakes out. Second, you know, I've always felt that as two countries side by side, we know each other pretty well, but sometimes our collective understanding ebbs and flows. And I think where we are now, it bears repeating that what happens in Mexico matters to the United States. It always has and it always will. And I think Mexico needs to realize that the U.S. caring or having a view on an issue is not necessarily a threat to Mexican sovereignty. The United States needs a stable, prosperous, job-creating Mexico. And so you see concern emerge in the U.S. when policies in Mexico seem to run counter to that. The U.S. interest is in Mexico's success. You can see the differences, I think, in approach coming, and I'll just mention one for now, uh, which is in the energy sector. You know, Clearly, the Biden administration plans to make climate issues a central part of its foreign policy and domestic policy strategy. I think the U.S. and Mexico will have to find a way to work together on this. It's not immediately obvious how, given the different priorities, but I think that's what diplomacy is for. It's for artful solutions. Luis, Mexico is certainly one of the countries that is hardest hit by the pandemic. More than 10 million people have already fallen into poverty. Private investment has also fallen by more than 22% in the last two years. And yet AMLO's approval ratings remains above 60%. The upcoming midterm elections of June will be certainly critical in determining whether AMLO succeeds in his vision. Can you please explain to us what is your views of where is Mexico right now and what is the stake in the upcoming June election? I mean, Mexico matters 
significantly to the U.S., as Kim explained. The U.S. matters significantly to Mexico. And we would like to have a prosperous U.S., helping Mexico develop. And I think it's the best interest of the U.S. to have a prosperous Mexico as well. So, I mean, some people have seen the uh, bilateral relationship always as a source of tension. It's natural because it's so intense. But I mean, at the same time, it's also a source of tremendous opportunity. And, and that opportunity will just continue to deepen regardless of what governments do. I mean, we saw the importance of Mexico in the U.S. in 2016 in the presidential election where Donald Trump chose to put Mexico at the center of his winning strategy to become president of the U.S. And then, of course, when he said, I'm going to either cancel or renegotiate the NAFTA, and we ended up with, in the midst of the pandemic in 2020, signing the USMCA that deepens the uh, integration between the two countries. Mexico is now, with López Obrador in power, in search for deciding whether we want to become a more developed country. It's a difficult, soul-searching process, and Mexico is going through it. I mean, uh, López Obrador, of course, is a challenge to the country because he's saying that uh, he represents, as Mariana mentioned at the beginning, a historic transformation. A transformation that he measures not in months or years, but in decades or even centuries. And this transformation, the reason why he won is because Mexicans wanted to change the relationship that the ruling class have with the, with the rest of Mexicans. And that's why he remains, and as Donald Trump did, relatively popular because many people that voted for him entrusted him with their voice. I mean, they, they believe that López Obrador represents their interest, that it, it is their turn. And, and they have now a place at the table where they can decide the direction of the country. Luis, how do Mexican politicians today see the United States? The political class in Mexico it took many, many years to accept the, the need to work with the U.S. I mean, they would, if they could, they would ignore the U.S., I mean, and that was reciprocal. Many people in Washington, of course, if they could, they would ignore Mexico. I mean, why not? I mean, the fewer trips from the State Department to Mexico, the better type of analogy. Well, in this process of soul searching, what we need is more democracy and not less. And we need to draw uh, the instincts of, of the average Mexican. And that's why the, the election in June is so important. Because López Obrador has been basing his first two years in which we had very scant growth or near negative growth in 2019 with a growing U.S. economy and, and then a very sharp drop in 2020, well beyond Canada and the U.S. in terms of how deep the recession became in Mexico because of the pandemic and also more people dying because of COVID. I mean, uh, but I mean, he spent his first two years basically reminding Mexicans of two things. One is this transformation I represent is profound, is radical, and two is irreversible. But why are these elections so important? If the outcome of the election is that we'll have a reconcentration of power in the hands of one person, the president of Mexico, in the years to come, we'll revert back to the system against which López Obrador fought for many, many years, which was to, to finish with the uh, arrangement under the PRI, where Mexico had an all-powerful president that took every single decision in the country. And the, that concentration of decision power is not conducive 
to a better country. Because, I mean, the level of complexity Mexico has today, and that complexity is very much linked to the integration with the U.S., is not proportional to having one person deciding everything. So the, the stakes are very high. And, and if the stakes are high for Mexico in, in this election cycle, the stakes are also high for the U.S. Because if, if Mexico errs on the side of reverting back to a system where we concentrate power and through the concentration of power, we concentrate wealth and, and go back to a system that is based on concessions and their chronic capitalism, corruption, I think the Mexico will suffer for it. But the U.S. will not have the opportunity to have a healthy partner that uh, will help the U.S. to reshape its economy, to be successful in the digital age, and to compete successfully with China. And that's why it's important. So it's, it's not only that there is a cost, but it is mostly that there is a huge opportunity cost to both Mexico and the U.S. if we don't think right. So paying attention to Mexico is, of course, important. And paying attention to the election process in June is crucially important because the solution has to be found through the people going to the voting booths and take the decision they want and give a direction to the country instead of just waiting to see whether just one person will decide where Mexico should go. Thank you, Luis. Kim, as you very well know, it took AMLO approximately eight weeks to congratulate Biden. And yet in the last few weeks, he has offered asylum to Julian Assange he has accused the D.C. of fabricating drug charges against former defense minister. He has passed a law demanding that U.S. agents share information. All of these while tensions are piling up on many trade issues. How do you interpret these actions? Or do you think is AMLO playing right now to a political internal audience? Or is it really that he's trying to change the bilateral relationship in a more permanent manner? It's a, it's a great question. And, you know, I think that to the, the extent that I can ascertain the answer, I think it's a little bit of, of both of, of what you said. I mean, there is no question that we've seen the reassertion of Mexican sovereignty concerns in the past few months. And as Luis just discussed, Mexico has midterms coming up here in a few months with a lot at stake. And I don't find this to be a coincidence. It also brings us to the to the simple fact that both sides have foreign policy and domestic policy interests. And in the case of this bilateral relationship, there tends to be a lot of overlap. And as Luis mentioned, there are times, particularly in election cycles like the U.S. had in 2016 in particular, where domestic concerns seem to rise above some of the foreign policy issues. I will say overall, though, where I come down on this is that geography is, is kind of like a force of, of gravity. It makes the bilateral relationship inevitable. So I think we may have some uncertainty for a while while this new normal, this new situation sets in, and then the governments will inevitably find their way. It is undeniably true, and I think we've learned over all these years of ups and downs, that the two countries are better off when they cooperate and worse off when they don't. The other point is that regardless of the relationships at the top between the presidents and those ebb and flow, and they have over time based on the personalities and priorities of different, different presidents, the relationship between the two countries is deeply institutionalized. So the daily interactions and the work goes on. And sometimes it's even better that way as things can be kept out of domestic politics on both sides. 
I actually do think President Biden will find a way and that there will be leadership from the top, but it's probably going to take some time to get there. Kim, in your view, what is the state of the security cooperation of the two countries today? You know, this is obviously a, a very sensitive moment for the two countries in the security relationship. Um, I think it, it, it bears repeating right now that it is absolutely clear that the number one threat to Mexican sovereignty and its control of territory and ability to enforce its laws is transnational criminal organizations. The U.S. and Mexico are on the same side here, and we need to remember that, I think. The Cienfuegos case made clear that there's a lack of trust right now in both directions, and clearly that needs to be rebuilt. The investigation that led to this situation began in Las Vegas, Nevada. And as it progressed, it ended up ultimately listening in on two traffickers on the phone discussing their support from a Mexican official in uniform. The investigation started and was carried out on the U.S. side to tackle U.S. networks and the U.S. effects of, of trafficking and drugs. It turned out that there was a Mexican connection, obviously. But if you're going to address the problem, you have to do it together. Thank you, Kim. Luis, you mentioned in your previous remarks that the Mexican economy is no longer linked to the performance of the U.S. economy. You know, just to give you an example, in 2019, Mexico's economy decreased despite the fact that the U.S. grew by more than 2%, marking the first time actually since NAFTA that the performance of the Mexican economy has not been tied to that of, of the United States. Actually, the IMF does not estimate that for the Mexican GDP to arrive at 2019 levels until 2024 or even more. Can you please explain to us why the growth of the U.S. economy is no longer enough to pull the Mexican economy as it used to? What is hindering the potential? Well, I mean, I think the answer is that it, it never was. I mean, the U.S. economy growing is, of course, tremendously helpful to Mexico, as Mexico's growth is also helpful to the U.S. I mean, we used to be a rounding error on U.S. statistics, but as, as Kim explained, not anymore, particularly for states just such as Texas or Michigan or others in the U.S., including Massachusetts. So we are deeply integrated. The uh, fate of the U.S. economy has a huge impact on the fate of the Mexican economy. And less so, on the, conversely, um, but I mean, we, we also influence the U.S. The problem is that putting all the eggs in one basket, in the basket of let's the U.S. become the locomotive for the Mexican economy is not enough. Because there is swaths of regions and sectors in the Mexican economy that do not depend on the economic performance of the U.S. And López Obrador was elected beyond what I explained in my first intervention, also as a hope to help those segments of the population, those sectors in the Mexican economy, those regions in Mexico that, that were left behind, that could not jump into the bandwagon of uh, NAFTA growing or now USMCA growing states. The reason why Mexico did not grow in 2019 and uh, it fell more than it should have in 2020, is that investment is way down. So the question we should be ask, asking ourselves is why are firms, Mexican or non-Mexican, are not investing enough in Mexico? And the answer is, in my view, relatively clear. 
Well, because we are not offering a prospectus of an environment that is conducive to more investment. And President Observador tends to see the, his success in terms of the exchange rate. And the exchange rate uh, is relatively appreciated because the dollar is relatively weakened. Not because the price is appreciated, but the dollar is depreciating. And that gives him a sense of comfort. In my, my view, if we, were, if we were taking the right measures in Mexico, the peso would be trading at 16.5 pesos to the dollar, not at 20. And at that level, the confidence of consumers and investors would be much, much higher. And Mexico would be growing and rebounding much faster from the pandemic than we are now thinking. And that's why it's a tragedy that the IMF and others think that Mexico will reach levels, let alone the 2019 levels, but the levels of 2018, not before 2025 or so. Because, I mean, Mexico, being a relatively middle-income country, needs to grow much faster. We should be growing faster than the U.S., not trying to catch up with the U.S., Please, just let me quickly make a follow-up question to you. As you said, there's certainly no growth without investment. Yet, you know, recent decisions by the federal government have certainly hindered the confidence of private investments. And the public sector is not investing either. In addition, you know, some of the proposals that are right now in Congress will, will increase the cost of energy. And at the same time, you know, sort of his vision is to have a more equal country, but with less growth. How do you explain this contradiction? Well, I mean, trying to explain the economic thinking of López Obrador is a challenge because López Obrador is a conservative populist. And that's almost a contradiction in terms, almost an oxymoron. I mean, his brain, in, in my view, economic brain, it has like three pieces to it. Piece number one is the hydrocarbons triangle. And he thinks that southern Mexico can be developed through that process. Problem is twofold. One is that petroleum is not large enough. So even if it was successful, it's not a large enough to become the locomotive of the Mexican economy. Second problem, of course, is that Pemex is beyond repair. The second triangle in his economic brain is what I call reasonable profits. He has this idea that profits beyond certain level are unreasonable in the sense that they are immoral. And these two triangles are compensated in his brain with the final one, which is balanced budgets. I mean, he is the son of shopkeepers, not from Gladstone in England, because then he would be Margaret Thatcher, but from, from Villahermosa in Guerrero, in, in Tabasco. And this obsession with balanced budgets that makes him conservative, it's a counterweight to the other two visions. The argument, I think, should be, Mr. President, what you are doing is not conducive to the success of your social programs because you will have not enough resources to help poor Mexicans be better off, unless you break your promise not to have balanced budgets. Kim, you mentioned the importance of remaining focused for the U.S. administration and focused in Mexico. Between the pandemic priorities, the economy, the threat of China, will the Biden administration, in your view, be willing to spend that political capital to help López Obrador understand his contradictions and not only behave as a more trustworthy partner, but also believe that, you know, he needs to fulfill his promises of certainty and protect investments in Mexico? It's an interesting question. I think you always end up in a, in a scenario with competing priorities. I have one particularly vivid memory of this 
from many years ago when President Bush was at his ranch in Crawford, Texas, with then President Fox of Mexico, and the two leaders got up to do a press conference. And I'm sure Luis remembers this as well. The entire press conference was about the Middle East. What I do think, you know, the the team, the Biden team is signaling that it's going to look for, though, it's going to try to find the areas where the two countries agree and where there's overlap, where they can where they can make progress. And I think, you know, I don't see a Biden administration sort of trying to force anything on Mexico. But I also have the perspective that, you know, choices have consequences. And one really interesting area I think that is that is coming and you can sort of see it is on USMCA and in particular on enforcement of of USMCA. You have the fact that when USMCA passed the Congress in the U.S., it passed with broad bipartisan support. And so these very people who are now being uh, put into key positions at USTR who supported the, the deal were involved in its negotiation and did so because of the new enforcement mechanisms, in particular on labor. These people have a stake in seeing USMCA succeed. And not only that, but to to make sure that its provisions are enforced. And so to the extent where, you know, there are Mexican policies or choices that appear to contravene parts of the of the trade deal, I think it is absolutely clear that you're going to see a very active and vocal U.S. policy community. I think labor is one that gets a lot of the attention. But I also think that you're going to see not only USTR and and the government, but the private sector exploring its options uh, under the trade deal. You know, I think you're you're beginning to see now the the outlines of the Biden policy on China. And and so far, to me, it does not look terribly different than some of the approaches that we saw from the Trump administration. You see, you know, a central theme of sort of a competitive environment with China being carried forward. On the whole, this is a tremendous opportunity for Mexico and for Latin America. Because if you see companies, because of this geopolitical environment, begin to shift supply chains or create supply chain redundancies, Latin America could be the beneficiary of dramatically increased foreign direct investment that Mexico needs uh, so badly and other parts of the region do as well. But as exactly as Luis said, companies are looking for a number of things when they're looking at investment. Mexico has tremendous structural advantages. It's close to the U.S., has sophisticated land border, has a well-trained workforce, a manufacturing base, a deep understanding of the U.S. market, and the overarching framework of, of the USMCA. All of these are benefits. At the same time, companies are looking for certainty, exactly as Luis said, for rule of law, for consistency, for predictability. And that's an area where, you know, it is absolutely clear now that there are a lot of questions. And to the extent that government policies in Mexico create uncertainty, I think the investment will end up going to to other parts of Latin America. Luis, would you like to comment on that? Do you see sort of based on your understanding of the current administration and where they want to go? Do you see any ability of this government to take opportunity of this nearshoring or this move towards North America that Kim was talking about? Partially. I mean, Mexico is tremendously attractive to that kind of investment because what companies are looking for is diversification of Chinese risk. Companies have invested maybe large manufacturing business concerns. They have invested maybe 70% of their capex in China in the last 30 years. So they have 
significant manufacturing capacity in China. And that has led to overexposure to Chinese risk. Chinese risk that is economic, is political, is geopolitical, and so of other kinds. And it's also energy. So companies are trying to diversify that risk. And if you make a mental list of the countries that are good at diversifying Chinese risk, Mexico comes on top, much better than South Korea or Taiwan, that the only thing they want to diversify China risk, much better than most other Southeast Asia countries, uh, Malaysia, Vietnam and Indonesia. They compete with Mexico, of course, but I mean, they are too close to China for no comfort. In Europe, I mean, Eastern Europe, so Central Europe used to compete against Mexico on that, but I mean, they don't have workers. Turkey is no longer a competitor. South Africa was at some point, but not anymore. And in, in Latin America, there is some competition from Colombia and maybe other countries in Central America, but they're, they're relatively small. Brazil is not a country where you would invest for worldwide production. So Mexico is, I mean, in and itself the best choice to diversify Chinese risk. And Mexico should be putting the emphasis on that. And I, and I think the way to convince López Obrador is to tell him, listen, Mr. President, if you really want the development of Guerrero, Oaxaca, Chiapas, Tabasco, South Veracruz, which is your electoral base and the states that are lagging behind and uh, where poverty is more acute and a source of domestic and international immigration and that they need help. The key to that is to make them states of North America economically, as opposed to states of Central America economically. I mean, Mexico has a 15% market share in the U.S. as a supplier to the U.S., where the second largest behind China. Of those 15% exports in southern U.S., from Texas to California, we have a 22% market share. In the Midwest, we have 18% market share. In the East Coast, in the southern part of the East Coast, we have only 9%. And in the northern part, from Virginia north, we have 5% market share in the East Coast of the U.S. And that part of the U.S. economy is tremendously large, tremendously dynamic, and very wealthy. So Mexico should have a strategy to develop a corridor that will open a border through the Gulf of Mexico between the Yucatan Peninsula and Florida and uh, Alabama to tap into the East Coast markets of the U.S., where Mexico is underrepresented. The way to convince López Obrador that he should take advantage of the current situation in which there is a diversification away from China is to tell him that that process is a historic opportunity to develop the regions of Mexico that are lagging behind. And that development of those regions includes not only programs to make them better off in Mexico, but also to integrate them to the world markets through the east coast of the U.S. And once they are successful there, They'll be successful elsewhere. And there is no reason why those regions of Mexico cannot succeed as the, the rest of the country has done. And relying only on, I'm going to rescue Pemex, so that Pemex is the engine for those regions to grow, is a gamble that is going to fail because of size and because of the inherent inefficiencies that we have in Pemex. Kim, you know Mexico and the United States probably better than anybody I can think of. Are you optimistic about not only sort of having probably the business community convince Lopez Obrador of the merits that Luis just spoke about, but also how would you convince the United States, a Biden administration who is promoting the Buy America, to see the region as a North American region more than just, you know, sort of putting the priority in, in America right now? 
It's a great question. You know, I guess part of the way that I view it is I actually think on the labor piece, on on the piece about generating jobs and development and opportunity, the, the very piece that Luis was just talking about in southern Mexico, I actually think there's a tremendous amount of synergy between what the Biden administration wants to do. Clearly, it's more focused on the creation of U.S. jobs in general, but you also see the, the Biden team coming out with policies to add additional funds to programs in Central America to generate opportunity there as well. And I, my view has always been that there is probably a way that the countries can begin to bring Southern Mexico into that equation. And during my time, we did that using the Development Finance Corporation that has been increasingly involved in projects in Southern Mexico. You know, the signals that I see right now from Biden are the right ones. You know, they've, they've created a new position at the National Security Council to oversee Mexico and border issues. They've signaled and early focus on Mexico. There were the early and appropriate phone calls between the various the leaders and all the various senior officials. So, I mean, look, I think I think the signals are all there, but it's going to take a lot of creative diplomacy between the two countries. It's going to take trust. As I mentioned earlier, I think there's a real rebuilding of trust that has to go on. When trust is broken in one part of the relationship, it inevitably spreads across to other parts of the relationship. I think we're, you know, we're going to have a period of uncertainty for a while, particularly in the run up to the elections that Luis mentioned at the beginning of our conversation this summer. And these are very consequential elections in Mexico. And I think we're going to have a sort of a, a period of uncertainty between that now and then until we see, you know, how those elections turn out. But at the end of the day, yes, I mean, I, I think there are a lot of challenges, but there are also tremendous opportunities as there always are. And it, the trick is going to be making sure that the countries are able to kind of balance those things and, and take advantage of the opportunities where there are, in my view, very real synergies between the agendas. And on that note of uncertainty, many challenges and hopefully opportunities taken rather than opportunities lost, that we have come to the end of our program today. My name is Mariana Campero. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 